How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Enormous applause for Mark Stiles. Happy New Year. Happy New Year again. Can you believe that it's... One year after the other. I'm so glad to still be doing that. I think I said Happy New Year last time, but I figure it's, you know, it's still January. It's a new year still. It's Happy New Year. Happy it New Year. Happy f- new year. Even if it's February or March, it hopefully will always be a Happy New Year. Or as Mark Stiles has said, a happier New Year. Happier New Year. Happier New Year. Things be going okay, Mark? Things are going great, Dr. Joe. How about you? Yeah. Yep. We, you know, like I said, Massachusetts has this new community behavioral health center plan throughout Massachusetts. It's really beginning to take hold. And I think, well, I know it's going to be a really important uh, benefit for a lot, a lot of people in Massachusetts regarding mental health and substance use. So That's awesome. We need more of it. We need more helpers. We need more awareness. We need more, 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 right? Well, we certainly could use more mental health workers. We have a crisis. So if anybody's listening and they want to become a mental health worker or associate, just contact us at Riverside Community Care in Dedham or any place that you feel a commitment to because everyone everyone could help. Everyone could help and everyone needs the help. But it takes a lot of grit and fortitude to be doing all this and a lot of grit and fortitude to be able to survive in January and February and the new year. And with that in mind, Tom, could you introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we're welcoming back Jody Eckleberry Hunt. Jody Eckleberry Hunt is a recovering people pleaser, control freak, warrior, and mother. (laughs) One thing she knows is that sometimes life hurts and we can't run from that. We have a choice of whether or not to deny it or go with it. She's learned that going with it is a better investment, but we need to laugh while doing it. After more than 20 years of providing counseling services, Eckleberry Hunt developed the idea of combining cognitive behavioral techniques, mindfulness techniques, and profanity to help people get over themselves with a good belly laugh. She has a PhD in counseling psychology and is board certified in health psychology. She has a psychology practice in Michigan where she lives with her husband, two teenage sons, and the dog, Prince Bacon. She is a human being and a work in progress, just like you. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah. It's great to be back. Welcome back, Jody. I I saw um, Mark Stiles' face. Uh, The audience might not have seen it when Tom uh, read some of your bio. Um, We have no idea if that will be edited out, but if it is, the words were... Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, can we say Prince on radio? (laughs) Can you what? Can we say Prince on radio? Uh, That's a good point, or or bacon sometimes. So, Jody... Belly, that's a little provocative. That's well, that's a laugh. That's true. If, we, if you can stomach it. Um, sorry, couldn't help that. So, Jody, I would ask you off air, but I'm going to ask you again. How many books are you planning on writing? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, as I so, I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about my new book, Badass Stories, and as I 
talk about in the intro to that book, uh, I told myself for many years that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And so what has happened is when I finally got around to writing, I have a lot to say. And so uh, it just keeps coming. So I guess I'm going to keep writing until it feels done. That's so good. But what do you mean this? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. A lot of people experience that. Why you, Jody? What was going on? So uh, Rachel Naomi Remen was my inspiration for this particular book. She has written Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessing. A lot of short stories of patients and um, healing stories uh, from her own life. And I loved those so much. And I thought I wanted to write some version of that. And I laugh, as I say in this book, but mine would be called Kitchen Island Slop, meaning <laughs> um, my stories, I always felt like would never quite measure up to hers. And I kept thinking, nobody wants to hear this because I don't have the, the neat endings. I, I, I appreciate the messiness. And so the not good enough was always comparing myself to somebody else. And finally, I guess with enough life experience, I've realized it's okay to be different. Like not everybody wants that same cookie cutter approach. And that's just bull. Mm. Is, is it connected to imposter syndrome at all? Do you think? Um, I, somewhat. I, yes, somewhat. I, I felt, um, not, I, I, I'm hem hawing around as I, I don't know that I felt like an imposter mm. as much as I felt like, what if people, what if, what if people don't identify with this or mm. what if they can't connect to it? Uh, as I say, I, I sometimes I've often felt different. And what I've realized after time is a lot of people feel that way and it's isolating. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very important distinction. I, I mentioned because I think some people, you know, feel that that they are doing things, but they don't believe in themselves. This seems to be what many, many, many people feel is they just they just don't believe in themselves. Am what I, I hear is the the comparison. Um, I talk to a lot of business owners who they tend to compare themselves to other business owners, and I like the phrase. I don't know where it was initially coined, but comparison is the death of joy. Hmm. you know you start to compare yourself and all of a sudden that's all you're thinking about and you said it so well jody not everybody likes what that particular author is doing not everybody is suited or is a good fit for that certain company you know why are you comparing yourself to something that is not perfect right so do you well, I want to say this is um, something that in our society we're really struggling with right now that I think relates is that um, multiple truths can exist at the same time. Mm. And it's allowing that like it's not saying one is better than the other, but multiple experiences can exist and be valid. Makes sense. So is that connected to what is knowledge? Because if you know, if something is true for one person, but not for somebody else, how do we then figure out what knowledge is? I guess that's a whole nother, sorry, I didn't mean to get all shrinky. But... Well, yeah, it's, it's, 
constructivism, right? We construct our own realities. I, I do think that there, you know, there are basic like moralistic good and bad, you know, like you shouldn't kill people. But I, I think that um, too often we in our society want to convince somebody else that their truth is not valid. And I, it's not valid to you, but mm -hmm. maybe it's valid to the other person. Right. Yeah. And why do you think we do that? Why, why do we need to try to convince someone that their truth is not as good as ours? Well, I think um, the answer is complex. Like for some people, it's maybe because uh, they, uh, having somebody else's truth, somehow they feel takes away from their own. Um, for other people, like for example, I was just having this conversation with somebody today. Not everybody's going to like me. And I, it's not my job to convince them to like me, but, but I can acknowledge that that is their truth, that maybe they find something about me that they don't like. But so I might want to convince them because I somehow feel like there's a flaw or I need to prove myself. So there are a lot of different reasons, but I, I think that some, we have to let those be. And and is that also part of the motivation for this particular book? Say, maybe explain a little bit more. Well, in, in the sense that, you know, you have your truth. You, you were saying that you didn't think you were good enough. Um but here's my story anyway. Yes. And um, I also felt a little bit of a hypocrite because in the work I do with other people, I'm encouraging them to own themselves, uh, own their own their show, um, own who they are. And I wasn't completely doing that myself. And so the stories that I talk about are, I've, uh, I would describe them as real and raw and messy. And those are some of the descriptions I've heard from other people. I tell some very difficult stories. So it's not a feel, it, hopefully it will be healing, but it's not initially a feel good kind of healing, like a pat yourself on the back kind of mm -hmm. a healing. And, and the word grit, I mean, I, I want to really dig into that, not just in this particular section, but in the next one as well. But can you just give people a broad idea of what grit actually is. So uh, Angela Duckworth, I think, is probably the most well-known expert on grit. And she talks about, I think her book title is Grit, the Power and Passion of Perseverance or something like that. So it's this like energizer bunny. No matter what you do, you don't give up. You hit the wall, you turn and go the other way. You fall down and you get back up. But it's an appreciate. It's not that you love that, but it's an appreciation that if I fall down, I've learned something from it and that I have to keep going, even if I'm not sure if it's the right direction or not, that I will change courses I need to. So it is, it's this never giving up staying power. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to enjoy it. It just means that you're willing to stick with it. Is it different than resilience in that way? It, I would say, um, that they're connected. You're more likely to be gritty if you're resilient, but um, I guess it, it hmm, I don't know that we always feel resilient, but we are willing to continue to show up in our own lives. Hmm. 
I heard a phrase like that just recently. 90% is showing up. Mark Stiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you share one of the stories, Jody? Um, sure. I'm. It's hard because uh, I'm not sure if I want to. When I was talking earlier, mm, mm, ooh, ooh, this is so much fun. This is yeah, great. Yeah. So is, it, is it is it easier to write it than say it? No, it's just that I I there my anxiety level just went up. Um, there is. I'm going to give you two stories. So there is one story where I write about a person that I saw who came in, said that they were coming in for one reason. And then really it was to confess to me that he had molested a child and that he um, went to prison. And I would not have chosen to see this person. That's not something I feel comfortable with. Um, but through a, a difficult process, I stuck with it and uh, for a brief period of time and kind of helped drill home this idea of, of duality. Like you can experience, somebody could be, do horrible things and, and disgusting, but realize that um, there are sort of other redeeming qualities and those can coexist and kind of understanding. So most of my work is with survivors of abuse. And often they gaslight themselves, survivors, because they um, had a person who, who they love at the same time they hate because they've done this horrible thing. And those two realities can exist, mm -hmm. um, but they can convince themselves that maybe they had done something to deserve it to justify that this person, because this person had some good qualities. Yeah. And so that is one story that is a very, very difficult story to share. This person confesses something to you, admits something that was, sound like fairly disturbing. And yet they trusted you to say that. How did you create an environment of trust like that? Um, I don't, I experience, I guess. Um, I, and I think that is probably one of the messages I try to hammer home in the book, which by the way, the stories are all disguised, just to be clear. Um, I, I don't put out per people's personal details in a way that you can identify who I'm talking about. Sure. But um, I think that that's probably what I find to be most healing in terms of therapy is listening to people's story and accepting it. Mm. Um, and uh, don't get me wrong. I have my own values, but that being able to hear somebody's story and just let it be again, not feeling like I have to impose my truth on it. Uh, there, so many people are isolated in the world and it's because they're too afraid to share their story. Now, I do feel, again, I said my anxiety had been high, and I say in the book that sharing that story made my anxiety high um, because I'm not saying I thought this person was cured. Mm. Uh, and that's not the point of sharing that story. It's just that there, there's conflict within people and conflict within relationships, and it's somehow finding some sort of a deeper understanding and accepting of um the realities, I guess, or that conflict. 
And so the anxiety was then or just telling us right now? Both. Yeah. So why now? Why the anxiety now? Um, going back to that fear of being judged, uh, people maybe misinterpreting, thinking I'm somehow saying child molesters are um, good people. And I, I'm not saying that they're good or bad, but that I'm sure that I chose to share that story. Uh, the fear of being judged and what people will do with that. Mm. But the other story, uh, kind of the flip, is I do tell at the end my own story about how a teacher pulled me aside and basically called me out and said, uh, is there something I can do to help you be more engaged in this class? And that teacher changed my life. I, I didn't believe I was... Uh, college material. I wasn't treated as college material. Um, and I had all this anxiety. And this teacher's simple act changed the whole course of my life. And so just to reinforce that, those connections, as kind of goes along with your model, that people make just have tremendous reverberations in the lives of other people. Yeah. But I, I picked up on you you were not seen as a college student what's mm -mm. that about well i and I'm, I'm very open about saying i have generalized anxiety disorder so i always had this sense of insecurity and just felt average and nobody in my family had been to college and i think that in the school i was in uh, i was routed on the non-college path because of lack of means and so I was just wasting time, I think. And uh, just having a teacher say, I see you. Like, I see you. And it just changed my whole life. Yeah. It is powerful how we can influence other people. And, and that really changes. is. What's that? Small changes have big effects. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's reminding someone of their value. You know, and letting them know that they're okay. So how does that earlier experience before this teacher connect with what we opened with, which is that you weren't sure that you were good enough? Yeah, I think uh, it started me on a lifetime path of figuring that out. And it's still it's always going to be a struggle because that's what an anxiety disorder, you know, is partially genetic and biological. And, um, but it, um, I don't know. I, I I'm still a work in progress. How about that? Good. It's good. And that, that also is part of grit, isn't it? That we just keep yes. getting up and keep trying again. And, and each time we do, I, I do think we learn something. We learn maybe not to walk back into that same wall, even yeah. if we may walk into a different one. Hopefully. Yeah. So tell us more about the book. Where, wherever so, you want to go, wherever you want to go, Jody. <laughs> I've organized it into uh, the themes of grit, growth, hope, and healing. And... The reason I, besides I had a lot of stories to tell, um, the reason why I wrote the book is I think that there are a lot of people out there who are isolated with the feeling of shame or judgment, um, that not good enough. And 
I chose stories that I think a lot of people will relate to, meaning that oftentimes books are written with these um, fantastical stories and they are great, uh, but they're so out of the ordinary experience of a typical person that we may be inspired by it, but not fully connect. And so some of the early readers of my book have said to me, I felt like I saw myself in a lot of stories. And that's what I was going for. So that was very heartwarming to hear. But I have the stories of folks who have um, uh, survived domestic violence situations, a lot of folks who are still recovering from childhood, um, not getting their needs met in childhood. I share several of my own experiences. Um, but I guess I would say that my stories don't wrap up with a, a neat, happy ending. They're to be continued. And that's the grit part. Like we're never done. And the growth part as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And growth is painful. Yeah, it can be. And then the hope. Mm. Tell us a bit about some of those chapters too. Yeah, I remember when um, I was on my internship and uh, I was asked to go see this gentleman who was just given a diagnosis of terminal cancer was in the hospital. And uh, he was still happy and perky and was talking about the future. And the treatment team insisted that I needed to go in and make sure that he understood he was dying. <laughs> and uh, I ended up being sort of a, a, a an internal conflict of who owns hope yeah. and it seemed like the treatment team um, thought if he was hopeful because he had a future that he wasn't somehow accepting the reality of a terminal diagnosis and I ended up taking the stance of I don't own hope for this person and hope is a belief that things will get better um, but that's individually determined what is better. And like going in and crushing somebody, uh, what benefit is that? Uh, it maybe makes the treatment team feel better. Like, okay, we've done our jobs and we've really hammered home the significance of this, but that didn't feel good to me. And so that would be an example of one of the stories when I write about hope. And what did you do? Well, I I ended up saying to the, the team, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to be where he, again, going back to that, his truth. It was his truth. And his truth could coexist with their truth. Uh, but I wasn't going to impose their truth on him. Yeah. You know, in in psychiatry, psychology, there's that idea of projection where we project onto other people what we are feeling. Sounds like maybe that's what this team was doing, that they had lost hope. Um, yeah. So they were going to impose that on other people. Hmm. Can we go back to the growth part for a bit? Sure. Um, you know, right, right now in our country, in our world, there's the opportunity for growth. But I, I just want to know, how do we... How do people take that opportunity? Because sometimes people just stay stuck where they are. Yeah, and that's the challenge, right? To not um, have a developmental arrest. And, mm -hmm. But 
I tell people that, um, so growth is painful. So we can't, if we're avoiding pain, we're avoiding growth. Uh, and it's saying growing pains, mm. but um, it is, uh, the, <laughs> when you, you stop growing, when you stop trying, and I, that's the connection to the grit. So if you're willing to show up, you're going to grow in some way, as long as you're paying attention and you're continuing to show up. Um, but every every opportunity is an opportunity to learn what gets in the way is when we judge it. Oh, that's not good. That growth is not good. And this is bad. Um, and then you just sort of take a detour to nowhere versus it's not good or bad. It just is. It's what sense do we want to make of it? And that, would it be fair to say that actually writing the book has been part of that growth for you? 100%. 100%. Yeah. How so? Well, um, I made, so first of all, I wrote the book. And uh, after many years of not of wanting to do it, but not doing it. But second of all, I would say uh, I wrote some very painful stories. Um, and I, there was a lot of back and forth inside myself. Like, oh, can I put that out there? Do I really want to do that? Uh, I, and I think really, if I'm being honest, partially that um, hesitance is because we live right now in such a tumultuous world where everybody is very keen to attack other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that environment probably gave me a little bit more back and forth. But in the end, the growth is I got to face that pain and be brave and put my truth out there and accept that not everybody's going to like it or agree with it. And that's okay. That is okay. Because it's were not you, a state. Go on, Mark. Were you afraid of being, quote, canceled? <laughs> um, well, I, I think I would have to have made it big to be canceled. But <laughs> I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can there you can be canceled at any level. I know that that when you were saying that, I I, I hear you like I was I was definitely it was landing with me, right? If I say this and one person is loud enough, it's going to be painful for me. Is it worth it? Mm -hmm. right? Do I want to speak my truth because that loud minority might speak it down? Well, that's up to you. People, people can really only cancel themselves at the end of the day. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, it is. I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts. Well, sure. So, I mean, the I'd say the three types of canceled would be, say, it's a huge celebrity that's claiming to be canceled and riding that to make their biggest mm -hmm. deals yet. Or the people usually on social media who get accused of usually pretty serious uh, misdemeanors and their popularity wanes in the light of it. And then there's the self-doubt kind of cancellation where you're your own worst critic and you just accept the worst case scenario ahead of time. 
and just take your ball and leave. And I think that's too common. So you see the obstacles instead of the the oasis. Mm. And the obstacles are so plentiful that you don't think it's worth going to the oasis. You only think what can go wrong. Hmm. Only what can go wrong. Only what the obstacles are. Huh. That's pretty deep. Well, it's easy to do. Like, for example, I have my I have a practice. I have other things I can do. I don't have to write a book. Right. Um, and so it's easy to say, well, you know, I don't really need to go there. But I just feel like there are um i, I guess I, I the maybe the impetus one of the impetus for writing the book is the number of people who've come in and have experienced relief by just telling their story because they felt so alone and i wanted to share a very different stories that i thought would maybe help people find that connection um I wrote in uh, uh, one of the chapters about when I saw the um, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Uh, I don't remember. It was the Tom Hanks movie, but it was about Mr. Rogers and how watching that movie, I became very moved. Like I, I was looking around, like, are people seeing me cry? That sense that he provided of complete acceptance of where you are. I just think that's so healing. It's so interesting because, again, it comes back to what we all want, which is to feel valuable. And sometimes we will avoid any possibility that we will be devalued. Mm. And I think when we do that, um, I think we underestimate ourselves. Underestimate ourselves. Uh, because the I am is saying, even that's an I am. You know, even if you're worried that you're going to be devalued, that's your I am at that moment. And if you don't like that, you can change it. Because remember, if somebody doesn't see you as valuable, that's their I am. Right? What's going on in their four domains that the best they can do is to see you as less than. So it's a way to sort of reflect uh, on who we are, why we do what we do. But we do have this propensity in us to, to shut down and avoid. And then, you know, I've had so many folks that I've worked with, uh, and I'll say to them, you know, you have these open wounds, but you need some scars. Mm. You know, I learned that from one of my mentors, Gary Jacobson. I want to give him credit for it because <laughs> it was a powerful, powerful idea. Open wounds will fester. Scars say, you know, this is part of what happened to me, but it is, but I've survived it. How do you think that may connect with the healing component of your book? Right. Like uh, when you said scars, I was like, and that's, um, that creates sort of like a re resilient texture. Um, yeah. So, I think, and, and in that particular section of my book, I really think a lot of therapists may connect with the, the, the major point, which is a lot of us are fixers, but that's not necessarily healing. That's mm. a way of judging. 
I have your, I have the answer for you. Um, I, I can solve your problem. And it's hard. It's hard not to do that. But healing is being a comforting presence and accompanying somebody on their journey without imposing your judgment and your solution. But it's, it is very hard to step back and just accompany somebody. But I feel that that is really what is healing because in when people feel isolated, uh, just having somebody who will walk with them and knowing I'm not alone, just, I don't know. Uh, and the, the other thing I wanted to highlight is I, the, the name of the book is called Badass Stories. And that is particularly, I chose that because as I'm listening to people's stories, I often find myself thinking, oh my gosh, you survived. Mm. Like that's badass. Um, And most people are thinking badass is, you know, something huge, like somebody survived, um, they fell off a a cliff and they're stuck and they nod off their arm or whatever, or they beat off an attacker. But I think just surviving sometimes life circumstances, that's badass, but they don't see themselves through that light. But if I were to tell you a story about you, but I disguise it, but it's about you, you're all of a sudden like, wow, I can't believe that person did that. That's you. Mm. Yeah. One of one of the things I will say to folks and patients is, you know, with, with all that you've been through, why aren't you doing worse? Mm. You know, what is so strong about you? And and it takes people by surprise as they sort of look back, look at themselves again. So, yeah, they have grit, resilience, and it doesn't mean that you didn't hurt and it wasn't painful and that you didn't suffer. And it doesn't mean that it was right, that it should happen to you. So what's it like for your patients when when you are walking with them through their journey instead of i i so agree with you jody hmm. the idea that we're going to fix people and treat them is so arrogant and and it and it diminishes our patience because they're not broken you know i don't have to fix anything you're not broken what's it like for your folks as they as you walk with them through these journeys well, i'm sure yeah i'm sure some of them are frustrated um because they want me to tell them an answer. Um, mm. And I, I I don't, it's, it's not something I can actually give somebody an answer for. So I'm sure some people are frustrated, but I think that again, somebody said to me this week, and it was a huge compliment, whether they meant it or whether she meant it or not, <laughs> was um, I, I, I still have a hard time reading you, meaning I tell you something And you're just sort of, you don't, you're, you're not showing your cards. And um, that, what I would consider is like a holding space. Like people can throw things out and regardless of what's going on in my head, I'm not immediate. I'm not, oh my gosh. Oh, that I can sit with it without being reactive. So again, you know, some people may find that frustrating. I guess it, it depends. 
that's a training part as well, right? I mean, that's to experience it. I mean, I, I'm wondering what you imagine your face might have been like when you heard that first story that you told us. Uh, how did you how did you contain yourself with that one? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I hope that my face was blank. Uh, my head wasn't. And mm. After you've done this, and I'm sure you know, after you've done this kind of work for a long time, um, you have heard enough that not a whole lot shocks you, but occasionally something does. And that is my hope that I can just be, okay. Mm -hmm. I've and and a sense of I've got this, even if I'm wondering what the hell am I going to do. <laughs> I, I don't want to give the impression that I don't, I don't, I don't have a handle on handling it. Yeah. No, it's it's very true. We've, we've heard so many stories. Every now and then, there's one that just like you need to bring all your professional skills in. Because we're still human, you know, even though we've heard story after story. And that being said, um, I, I, I still do, not as much as I used to, but I still do cry occasionally when somebody's telling me something very heartbreaking. I'm not weeping. I'm not, you know, sobbing or anything, but absolutely allow myself to tear up. And I think that's part of what's healing is I'm sitting with the person and I'm trying I'm, I'm not, I don't know, should I trying? I am feeling a little bit of what it must be like to have had that experience as much as I would be able to. Uh, I try to make myself um, emotionally accessible. And, and to that, a part of being a good therapist is taking care of yourself outside of so that you have the emotional energy to give that to other people. That's so true. It's, you know, one of the things that I teach, having been taught it, the two rules, the first, never worry alone. Mm. Uh, always find someone to worry with. But the second, the therapist must survive, mm -hmm. you know, because this can be really hard work. And it's really important when you leave work, you're allowed to really leave it. You're allowed to go home. Doesn't mean you're not caring. Doesn't mean you're not compassionate. Doesn't mean you're not committed. But you come back the next day ready to do it again you never worry alone really really important stuff i um it, it it brings me comfort to hear you saying this because you know in a lot of what we do and a lot of conversations we have is you know people want the pixie dust they want the answer give me the answer the one that i need now tell me the solution please and you know we get caught up where we're being asked to give advice. And I, I don't love giving advice. I like sharing experiences and giving options and playing out different things as opposed to saying, do this. This is what you need to do. Mm. So I love this episode. So thank you for joining us again, Jody. Yeah. The book, Badass Stories, Grit, Growth, Hope, and Healing in the show said so that because we're you know on radio but when we do our podcast i guess we can say it show good i said it all right so with with that in mind uh, let me just go back to the other book how's you want to tell 
folks about the first book. Was that your first book? And this is your second book? This is my third. That's what I thought. So what was the first one? Do I get to say it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, move on, mother Yep. Live, laugh, and let go. Yeah. Um, that was my first one. Oh, yeah, there it is. Look at that. Yeah. 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 He's got it. Tom's got it too. Um, the and second the second one, one uh, getting to good riddance, a noble breakup survival guide. We did that one too, right? <laughs> and this is the third. And it's back for the for the for the trifecta. <laughs> for the trifecta. So, was I mean, folks, you know, you can you can get all these books on Amazon, I assume, and other places like that, right? Because they they are wonderful, and it does feel like there's a progression uh, going through the books, whether whether that was purposeful or not. But does it feel that way that that there's been this movement and this progression through the books? Um, yeah, you're very perceptive. So the first one, the move on mother was more, um, here's a great technique that I have found uh, that I think will resonate with some folks to uh, induce humor. Because I'm I'm huge believer in humor as a as a healing tool. And it was a it was a safe place to start. Getting to good riddance was more a uh, a tool I, I have always somebody in my practice always who is coming in because of a breakup and I needed something for them to read. And that's the one area I've never found quite the right book around breakups, like a, like a prescriptive. And as I said, I don't tell people what to do except in the book. <laughs> so like, okay, because I, it, this is something that you can do to feel better in the moment. Like for example, exercise. So when I say prescriptive, it's not, here's the solution to your problem, but here are some ways you can self-soothe. And then sort of, I think building up to, this is the book, The Badass Stories is the one I've wanted to write from the get-go. Yeah. And I had to work up the courage and so I'm like, okay, I can write. And now I think I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can totally relate to that evolution and progression, getting to that that book. But these are powerful stories, really powerful stories. Do you think the do you think that any of the patients that you have who have been, you know, certainly disguised, absolutely. You had said earlier, somebody could say, God, that's an incredible story. And you could say, well, that was you. Um, how do you think folks who know you, who may still, certainly are still in your practice, have, how do you think they're going to respond to your revelation about yourself in this book? Yeah, so um, many of the stories are combined people. Uh, but there are a few uh, folks who I've seen over the long term who I felt I, I wanted them to read the story. So early on, before I even submitted to the publishers, and uh, they read the story a couple of different, their stories a couple of different times throughout the process. Are you still okay? Are you still okay? And um, then I they got early copies of the book. So I would say, in answer, um, and their stories are still disguised regardless. Mm -hmm. um, they were like, oh my gosh, like, I know it's about me, but it's so hard for me to 
see myself and and having read that my story in your words made me really feel like a badass like they could see it and then they would also say i loved that you include stories i know that you're out there with us like you're a human being too and it so i have had people tell me that they appreciated seeing the human humanness in the uh person who's supposed to be the healer yeah i i think it's one of the most powerful parts of our evolution in this field my colleague andreas martin a brilliant psychiatrist at yale um is really championing this and saying you know just because i'm a psychiatrist doesn't mean i don't get depressed you know, and 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 we'll tell his story about those things, and and I think that that's a really important evolution. We we spent a lot of time in our field, sort of putting on that that mask, if you will, you know, not me. And yet, when we reveal this part of ourselves, I think our patients, for the most part, appreciate that they're actually with another human being in the room. Yes. And I do address that in the book. Um, I say, maybe people will be surprised when I say I've loved people I've worked with, like truly loved. And that's not the, the history of our field. Yeah. You're supposed to be objective, which I think is is bull because we're still our, we bring our own values and I don't think complete objectivity is possible. That being said, I was trained by very humanistic um, supervisors and I can remember being on internship and I was sitting in supervision and saying, I can clearly remember this saying, I love this person. And my supervisor said, well, of course you do. Mm. And I think that that is part of the healing process. Now, not love so much that I want to control or impose. Uh, but I think that when we don't speak the honest feelings they maybe have more power over us. I think part of owning that is is being real and authentic and saying, I feel this way. Or maybe if I felt disgust towards someone and getting supervision and saying I felt disgust. And so it doesn't come out in toxic ways in the therapy room. Yeah. And I do think, Jody, this is, you know, an important book because it, it gives this evolution to our field. You know, this is another phase in the direction that we're heading in, in, in what we call therapy. It's, yeah. it's, not about, it's not about fixing people or treating people. It's about seeing people, as you say, yes. and recognizing their value. And I think that that, uh, that is a powerful, powerful thing goes a long way. And it's a change. It is a change in our field. And with, with that in mind... I want to get to the two truths of the I am because our listeners know that because the four domains intersect, connect the home domain, the social domain, the biological and the I see domain, how I see myself, how I think other people see me because they always are interconnecting a small change in any one domain can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So with that in mind, what small change can you recommend to our listeners given the subject we're talking about. I would hope that when folks are beating themselves up with shame or judgment or not good enough or whatever that is, that they can say, and you know what? I'm going to say, what one badass thing did I do? Mm. Or what 
um, what is bad ass about me today? And force oneself to switch perspective. That would be my hope. Yeah. So basically say one badass thing that you did. Yeah. Or one badass quality that I have or yeah. however you want to phrase it. And you don't need to limit it to one, I suppose. True. Yeah. So the other truth of the item, and folks, it's a, it's a great suggestion. If you want to, you know, write in the badass thing that you see about yourself to our website and to the Facebook page, please do. We would love to hear about your badass. The second truth of the I am. Everyone is interested in what you think about them through their IC domain. And you know, it has a different effect on the biological domain because it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. And you're part of someone's home or social domain. So this means you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Jody Ackleberry Hunt, author, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be uh, an accepting influence. Going back to what I said, being um, providing a safe holding space for people to be who they are, share their truth, and I can be accepting of that. And it doesn't have to take away from my truth. Yeah. That's a powerful, powerful approach and a great influence. Let's hear about the book, the title one more time and where we can get it and the other books too. This is Badass Stories, Grit, Growth, Hope and Healing in the Show. It's available wherever you buy books. And um, yes, Move On Mother is the original. And Getting to Good Riddance, uh, a no bullshit breakup survival guide is about setting boundaries with toxicity, breakups, and it could be breakups at work, home, wherever. We're so, so thrilled and honored to have you back for the third time. We cannot wait to have you back for a fourth, fifth, as many books as you want. And you can just <laughs> pop in at any time anyway and just tell us how things are going. We would love that, you know, because there's there's a lot, uh, a lot to talk about here, Jody. And, you know, I, I, I would like to believe, and I'm sure I'm right, that your patience are grateful for who you are and for being there for them. So I truly appreciate that as well. Thank you. That's very kind. All right, folks. Thanks for listening to Dr. Joe's show. And we will be here next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.